Welcome to the Imperfect Church Podcast, a podcast for the imperfect church and the imperfect pastors that lead them. I'm Ryan Reed. And I'm John Martin. And this is the Imperfect Church Podcast. It is. Here we are, round two. Yeah, How we should have done we should have done this one first. Yeah. Because we did a lot of uh um um shooting the bull. Can I say that? I don't know. Can you say when you <laughs> no, say shooting? Is that okay? When you say shooting the bull, well, you're, after you're I talking said it, about, I thought I thought I didn't. I don't know if that's an appropriate you're, phrase. You're talking about actually taking <laughs> the bull out back and to shoot him, yeah, right? No, I nothing. Right, no, no cursing mouth. that's connected to that, right? John, are we gonna have to stop it or are we gonna oh, keep going? Gosh. Y'all know John. John calls you our dear listeners morons. Oh, gosh. John is unfiltered. Get a diet coke in him. He's ready to go. <laughs> yeah. What I meant, what I meant to say was, was we should have done all of our talking on this one because this subject is harder than the one we did previous. It's not that hard. It John. is, and your our people will understand when they hear our subject. This is not something that comes up in the common household conversation, which is or weird. even even in the local church conversation. Yeah, and I would say that you're right. This is not something we often talk right. about. <laughs> but the the influence and the ghost of this conversation often come up from the pulpit and in the in the pews. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I guess the uh, the the word is not used. The name is not used. Uh, it, it's been just like when we've talked about Pelagius or Pelagius. Right. Yeah. And uh, also Augustine or Augustine. Yeah. Both of those are people as well. We don't talk about. We don't talk about them often. Uh, but you're right, the ghost mm-hmm. still remains. So, well, this will come out in October, so we're going to talk about ghosts. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we're talking about uh, today a theologian you should know. That's right. And his name is Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm of Canterbury, that's right. So he was um, in the medieval times, right? Yeah, a medieval so. theologian and uh, possibly my favorite medieval theologian. Oh, really? Yeah, Um I would say that, yeah. I love Anselm. I think okay. he's great, and I think he's uh, he's accessible to read. But you love Anselm because you love Augustine, Augustine. I and Anselm was a fan of Augustine. He was. He was in the Augustinian tradition, mm-hmm. uh, writing from that. Uh, but he he brought his own um, practical side of uh, theology. Yeah. Uh, and he did a lot for our church, building the bridge from Augustine to Aquinas. Sure. Who we'll talk about Aquinas one day. Yeah, uh, when we're we're a little bit more versed in Aquinas, so yeah. So uh, here we have Anselm. Anselm uh, was born, we know, around ten thirty three. That mm-hmm. would be right in yeah. the uh, Alpine town of Asta. Asta in northern Is that Italy. How you say that? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It's a French word. <laughs> French words are weird. Uh, Asta in uh, in Italy, and so uh, he was. Uh, he was a very bright man. Obviously, all, all of these theologians we talk about, we kind of start with that, right? right I yeah. mean, they were they were really really smart guys, and uh, uh, of course, you know, he was he was and uh, is one of the scholars and theology that we that we read. Anselm was scholarly from early on. Yeah, you know what Anselm's father's name was? I don't. Mm-mm. I like this name, Gundolf. Gundolf, like Gandalf, <laughs> yeah, yes. but like a German except Gandalf. It's, except it's G U N. Un shall not pass. That's right. Yeah. So his father uh, was Gondolf, I guess is how you say it. And interestingly, Gondolf the Great. Uh, he did not want Anselm to be in the ministry. Yeah, uh-huh. he he desired for Anselm to be in politics, and uh, as a matter of fact, he he forbid him from entering into that local abbey. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, but we all know that that didn't work out. That well. didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Anselm, uh, 
first off, just kind of thinking about his family background, he was born into a family of of some considerable wealth. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is their wealth was on decline. Yeah, it was. And so in those days, um, if you were born in medieval times and you were a man, you really had two options. You could go into the army or you could go into the abbot. That's right. Uh, so you could become a monk or you could become a military guy. Right, yeah. And Anselm, from a young age, his earliest biographer, uh, Idomir, says uh, says some, it's just, it's really some hagiography. Um, you know, that is, that's a biography, but it's, you know, it, it's, yeah. uh, it makes it moving seem. Moving on. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> So basically, Edomir says that as a young man, uh, his, his his he was taught by his parents that uh, God Almighty was God over all things, but yeah. he kind of envisioned God living in the mountains surrounding yeah, him, the right. Alps, yeah. right? Yeah. You're living right there next to the Alps. Yep. They're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he just assumed God lived on the mountain. Yeah. And so he had a dream one night that he traveled to the top of the mountain and uh, met God there, and God gave him the bread of life. And from that moment on, he decided that he would, uh, he would proclaim the glories of God uh, for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. Go ahead. So he desired to he desired to go into the ministry this early, fifteen mm. years old or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, because his dad was so adamantly against mm-hmm. it, yeah, uh, they would not admit him into the uh, abbey, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, uh, but he continued to uh, he continued to desire to go into this uh, ministry, and uh, eventually, eventually he would. Yeah, uh, and he had some tragedy as a young man. His his mother passed away, and as we mentioned, yeah. uh, he and his father did not see eye to eye on things. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so uh, their split was uh, was pretty prominent from an early age. And so he left um, his town and uh, the hills of the of the French Alps and uh, went and uh, went to the monastery at Beck. Yeah, I love I love this though. Before we move on for this <laughs> this disagreement. Uh, between he and his father, uh, this quote here that uh, Ryan actually has in a paper that we read in preparation for today. I made John read a by, doctoral paper. <laughs> by uh, R.W. Southern is the guy's name who says it. He, he says that uh, with his father, he had nothing in common except for mutual dislike. And incompatibility, <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, the one thing that he and his father did have in common is they didn't like each other. They didn't like each so, other. Uh, anyway, it would uh, it would eventually be one of the things that presses him after the death of his mom to go and join into the uh, the the monastery at Beck Beck Normandy, right? Yeah. So uh, the reason why he goes to Beck is really because the teacher at Beck has yeah. uh, had had gotten uh, some considerable renown. Uh, La Franck. La Franck. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Lafranc uh, was that. You got to kind of it's nasally, right? You got to. So he he goes yeah. to he goes to study under Lafranc, and there at the monastery he has a wealth of resources to study, including yeah. many of the church fathers, Jerome, Augustine, and those guys. And yeah. Anselm proves himself to be a bright uh, and studious young man. Yeah. So much so that when Lafranc is is brought away and made the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he he resumes uh, Anselm becomes the the prior of the monastery. Right. Yeah. So Anselm uh, would become known as the uh, you know one of the greatest disciples of Lanfranc, and uh, and then as you said in 1060 uh, he would not just be a student but become a full time monk and then or then in time he would become over all of that monastery. Yeah, and he did something just a little bit different than Lanfranc. Lanfranc was known for his intellectual uh, rigor. Uh, with his students, like he, rigor, rigor. Sorry, there's no D in there. <laughs> I was like, um, I, I've never heard it called rigor. I, I just, okay, uh, good. You know, we're not, we're we are the imperfect church podcast, there, John. Uh, so intellectually, we're gonna move on, John. 
so intellectually, he was well known, and uh, uh, Anselm did not uh, lessen the rigor. <laughs> yeah. But he did want to shift the focus a little bit with his monks and focus yeah. more on on the spiritual aspect of it. There is an intellectual aspect as well, but it's it's heart and head. That's right. And uh, and this really is where he he uh, wrote his two famous works, the Monologian and the Proslogian. Yeah. Uh, both of which began as discussions between him and his students that focus on prayer and meditation. Yeah. So this uh, writing of the Proslogian, is uh-huh. that how you say that? Yeah. It would uh, it would lead to uh, really his first uh, controversy in the religious intellectual world, mm-hmm. and uh, between two guys that I'm not going to start saying that try to say their name. But anyway, the theological argument uh, erupted between those two, and uh, and one of those one of those arguments that he was having is he held an orthodox view of Trinity, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, there were others that were holding an unorthodox. Uh, view of the Trinity, mm-hmm. and so there was a disagreement there between uh, these these intellectuals. Yeah, Anselm proves himself to follow in the footsteps of the Father. He is he is thoroughly a Nicene Christian, yeah. and 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 really becomes a champion of Nicene Christianity during yeah. the medieval times, which gains him uh, some reputation uh, with these arguments between these two other uh, writers at this time. Yeah. And, and he writes, he writes, uh, you know, another treaty called "On the Incarnation of the Word," which I think solidifies then mm-hmm. his understanding of the Trinity and how the Trinity works. And uh, of course, as a result of the argument between these two guys, this first controversy that he has, uh, he gains a lot of respect from people. Mm-hmm. They yeah. thought they start thinking, "Well, this guy does know what he's talking about." Let's start listening to what mm-hmm. he has to say yeah. and reading what he has to write. And so as a result of all of this, this process ultimately will lead him in 1093 to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury, which uh, many of us know Canterbury from the Canterbury Tales. Right, right. Uh, So this is the same Canterbury. Uh, that uh, that that Anselm becomes Archbishop of one of the thing. One of the things before you go, go wherever you're going, but before before. Uh, you say that. I think it's really interesting that uh, a couple of places that I read uh, that he he was really uncomfortable with becoming the archbishop. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and it, I think it was apparently there was there was to always be this uh, there was this to be this expected humility of the minister. Right. Right. Whenever you are called to become the archbishop, you're not supposed to want to take it. Right. Right. Yeah. But it seems that. It seems with Anselm that it was genuine. Right. Yeah. He genuinely felt uh, felt unprepared and unworthy yeah, of becoming yeah. with such a title. I think Anselm was most comfortable at Beck, teaching yeah. students. That's right. Uh, being, writing, writing, uh, teaching students, praying, leading a yep. monastic type life. Yeah. Um. And and so when he's elevated to this position of archbishop, he knows this is going to be a problem. Yeah. Because as archbishop. He then has to confront the king. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so right around this time period, you're seeing the formation of kingdoms. So England is really being formed at this point. Uh, not only that, but this is during the papal uh, schism yeah. that's happening uh, around the same time. So at this point, there's two popes. Eventually, there will be three popes, mm-hmm. which leads to some other questions about you know, you know, all the papal questions that yeah. come up around that. Yeah. Uh, but let's not offend the Catholics. Th- today. Let's not offend the Catholics today. Uh, maybe later. <laughs> yeah. um, popes are wrong. Yeah. So uh, Anselm 
comes into this situation knowing that the King of England uh, is essentially trying to grasp a little bit more power during this time. Yeah. So yeah. he is backing a pope that has told him he has the right, the king has the right to uh, to appoint bishops. Right. Uh, and Anselm says, no, nah, that's not right. Yeah. Uh, you are not in control of those things. The pope is, is the one who gets mm-hmm. to, uh, to appoint bishops uh, and cardinals. Uh, so now there's al- already... There's a there's a schism between him and the king, yeah. Uh, and I I love this relationship between Anselm and particularly King Henry, uh, because um, Anselm uh, speaks at this time and he he says, "Hey, I don't uh, mean to correct you, what? But your paper says King William. Well, it's King William to begin with, and then King Henry comes along, uh, and and it's really King Henry that he has the big beef with. But it begins with uh, you William. You just need to be consistent. I'm just, I'm just saying, is I'm it just King William you. or is it King Henry? King William begins. <laughs> Anselm begins his 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 role as Archbishop. Never given me this thorn paper. in the side. <laughs> uh, and so here's what I like to think about it as. Uh, Anselm is the is to King William and to King Henry as John is to me. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. this is this is something that uh, that that Anselm says about his relationship uh, between him and King William Rufus and King King Henry. He says, "I was so harassed in the archbishopric that if it were possible to do so without guilt, I would rather die than continue it." Yeah. And King William responded uh, by saying, after a showdown, which Anselm ended up being the victor over King William, King William said, Yesterday I hated him with a great hatred. Today I hate him with yet greater hatred. And he can be certain that tomorrow and thereafter I shall hate him continually with even fiercer and more bitter hatred. Yeah. And this was really his relationship with the kings of England. Yeah, and to say to say, I think what everyone is expecting to happen, uh, William kicked him out. Yeah, he got exiled. <laughs> so um, turns out the king has a little him. bit more power than the that, archbishop. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So he he exiled him, and uh, but really, that seemed to be a very beneficial time for Anselm, and certainly for us, because it's in exile. That Anselm writes and uh, and does some really beneficial theological treaties of things today that we even believe right, right. Um, now. Uh, and and so Anselm does a lot of writing uh, during this time. Uses yeah. his time wisely uh, to tackle some of the theological issues of the day that do then in in turn uh, inspire and affect the church of today. Yeah. Uh, so he writes for a while, and then ultimately King Henry uh, brings him back. And uh, after King Henry dies, King Henry II is around, and he is able to live a life of, of quietude a little bit. Yeah, so one of the major works that he wrote while he was in exile is Cur, Cur Deus, Deus Homo. Homo. Yep. So, Why the God-Man. Yeah, and so this is really important because uh, it, it, this would continue, and it is continued today to be a work that uh, sets our part of our standard in our theology today. I, I love this, this quote by soon to be Dr. Ryan Reed, mm, who mm. says... Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> uh, that in this work, he theorizes that sin is measured not in, the amount of, not in the amount of sin committed, but against the worth of who it is committed. Mm-hmm. And man, that, is, that sentence right there is certainly continues to be a part of our theology mm-hmm. and our understanding of the offense of sin in our life. So... That's just one of the many things that was addressed inside of this uh, this treaty. Yeah, and so uh, Anselm uh, ends up coming back, living a life of quietude, and ultimately uh, passes away, um, ending his life without uh, much controversy between yeah. him and the kings. Yeah. Uh, so really, that leads us to the question: This is the life of Anselm, and we already touched on a little bit of these things. 
But what is his impact on today? And I think we have to begin with Cures Deo Homo. Yeah, sure. Uh, because Cures Deo Homo, Why the God-Man, is Anselm's treaty on on the atonement. Yeah. What is the atonement? How 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 does that... What did Christ do on the cross? Yeah, sure. And so, uh, obviously, uh, we have ideas about that. We have ideas about the atonement, mm-hmm. you know... Um, uh, one one of the ones that we've mentioned on this podcast before that is in error is the ransom theory, mm-hmm. and uh, as we have uh, we 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 accuse C.S. Lewis right yeah to poor having... C.S. Lewis <laughs> yeah he gets the ransom theory the uh, but this treaty that he writes uh, you know answers the question of why did God become man. And he argues for not a ransom theory, but a satisfaction theory. Right. But there, uh, there were other guys in this time, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, is that uh-huh, right? Yeah. Nyssa. They all held to the ransom right. theory as well, that somehow man is being held captive uh, by Satan, and Christ's death is paid for to relieve us from the the ransom of uh, or the, the, the captivity of Satan himself. But Anselm says... No, Satan is not holding us captive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something totally different. We've all sinned, and the payment of Jesus satisfies the payment that's necessary for our right. sinfulness. Right. So that's really the question: why? Why the God Man? Yeah. Why? Why did Jesus have to be God? Yeah. Uh, so Anselm says Jesus had to be God because of the great payment. Yeah. That sin incurs. The yeah. the debt that, that is owed is so great that no human can pay it. Yeah. So God must die. No one but one who is God man can make the satisfaction by which man is saved. And then why did he have to be man? Because this is this is Nicene theology, right? We're gonna yeah. talk about the nature of Christ soon. We are. Uh, but Christ is one hundred percent man, one hundred percent God. Yep. He, he, why does he have to be man? Well, Anselm says he has to be man because man has committed the offense. Mm. Uh, so if man has committed the offense, man must pay the ransom. Yet no man can pay the ransom because man has sin. Yet Jesus is the God-man. So he is the perfect sacrifice for sin as God and as man, yeah. uh, which ends up being what we would what we would say is reformational theology that sure. comes down today as we talk about in a few weeks another reformation topic. Yeah. This, this plays right into it. Anselm lays the foundation for our understanding of the atonement. Yeah, so he matters because of that, because right. he gives us, even in our theology today, a good understanding of the atonement. But he matters also... Because of his understanding of the doctrine of will of yeah, the will yeah, of man, yeah. which plays into the understanding that we talked about several weeks ago with the Augustine, right? Yeah, yeah. So when we come to the uh, the Reformation in just a few short years after, five hundred years after Anselm, um, you you have an argument between Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus is is the theologian that is pegged by the Catholic Church to take on Luther and to bring him down theologically, and. Erasmus really says to Luther, your arguments about all these issues, uh, it stems to the the understanding of the human will. And Luther writes back, you're right. That's exactly what this issue is. The issue is uh, an issue between Augustine's view of the will or Pelagian's view of the will. Right. And he accuses the church of falling into Pelagianism. Right, sure. Uh, and really, that, that idea between Augustine and Pelagius did not disappear with Augustine. That's right. But Anselm shows that and he is... And still, it's still here today. It's still here today, right. <laughs> yeah. And so Anselm shows that he is thoroughly Augustine in his idea of the will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he has two works uh, on free will and on uh, or why, why did Satan fall or why mm-hmm. did Satan sin. And in both of these works, 
um, he uh, he discusses the idea of 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 how we make decisions, and he has one of my favorite quotes. And John, do you have it ready to read for I us? I don't have it ready. All right, I got but it I right t- here. I told you to because I, I love don't. it. That's great. When <laughs> yeah. when you're reading Anselm, and he says something like this, he says, "Every willing person wills his own will willingly." <laughs> So here's the idea with 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 oh, Augustine gosh. on the will. He basically says, "What does it mean to have free will?" Yeah, which is a good question for us today. This is this is some discussions, and uh, some people say that to have free will means that you can choose to sin or choose not to sin. Right. Um, but Anselm says that cannot be true because right. God has free will. Right. And yet God cannot sin. So his quote is, "I do not think free will is the power to sin or not to sin. Indeed, if this were its definition." Neither God nor angels who are unable to sin would have free will. Right. Right. So, exactly. I mean, it, it makes no sense. So, what Anselm says is he says that free will is the ability to maintain moral rectitude. That's right. Or the ability to not sin. That's what yep. free will is, yep. Yep. is to will your, to, to control your will in such a way that it is perfect. Yeah. He says only God has that. And then he, he, he doesn't take away human accountability here. He says that humans are accountable in the sense that we will our own will willingly. No one forces us to will our will in a way that is negative. We do it because we want to. Yeah. So uh, essentially that quote says, we do what we want, and fallen sinners want to sin. And so we must have the Holy Spirit that then helps us to maintain moral rectitude or moral perfection by willing what God wants. Uh, And that is not accomplished until heaven. So let me ask you this. One of the... This is a sentence from your paper. Okay. All right. It says... I shouldn't have given this paper. <laughs> it says, uh, Anselm states that just because it is difficult for man to withstand the temptation of sin, it is not theoretically impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Anselm would say, is this why he enters into a monastery? Anselm would say it is possible to be sinless. Yeah. Yes or no? No. I think, I think what Anselm is saying there is that uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can... Uh, through yeah. sanctification, not become perfect. We, in other words, what he's saying there is that we have the we have the ability, the physical ability to not sin. Yeah. I have the ability uh, to cover my eyes and not to look at something I ought not to. Right. So he's saying uh, that that is where that is where our responsibility comes from. God does not ask something from us that we cannot physically do. Yeah. The problem is, and, and he'll go on to say, Anselm will go on to say, is that we have hearts that are wicked. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, one of the distinctions you draw here, and I ask that just to cause trouble. But, yeah, obviously. But it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not a question of actuality. Can I actually not sin? Right. It's a question of capability. Right, exactly. So, Which is where you come to, uh, he's, he's interacting uh, against Pelagius from an August, August, Augustinian viewpoint, because Pelagius says... If God commands something that we can't do, then that's yeah, unjust. That's right. And Anselm says, no, we yeah, can do right. it, yeah. theoretically, yeah. but we cannot do it because we have a will that is broken. Right. That's right. That's right. That's good. Yeah, so that's that's the that's the second thing that we we gain from him. We see him, the seeds of the Reformation. Yeah. Because sure. that, that, that idea, though he is thoroughly in the medieval Catholic Church, even as an archbishop, um, that 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 theology is then going to come out in Luther. Uh, and it's going to break with the Catholic Church. Sure. Uh, and it continues today in the Reformation. Which is, again, another reason why he's so important. That's it. And then we come to his, his th- the third reason why he's important, and that is uh, his works, the Monologian and the Proslogian, which are really worship books, and which uh, Anselm takes um, the arguments for God, and particularly uh, he takes the ontological argument for God, and he uses it as worship. 
Yeah. So the ontological argument for God is based on the idea, the the Platonic idea that there must be a first mover. Mm. Uh, there there must be a great if there is being. We know that there is being. People exist. Things exist. Then those things uh, being cannot come from something less than itself. Yeah. It yeah. must come from something greater than itself. So, so is it, uh, this famous ontological argument is that God is that which nothing greater can be thought. That's right. So there's got to be something out there that is greater than everything yeah. else. Yeah. Anselm says that is God Almighty. And he uses it not so much. I've heard a lot of people, and I've had conversations with some friends, um, that they, they make the rightful critique that the ontological argument for God is not very effective in evangelism because we don't think that way anymore, right? We're not walking around as as uh, Platonist. We're walking around post-enlightenment. Uh, so many of us are Baconist or whatever else. Yeah. We don't know what we are. Yeah. Uh, we're confused. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. when we begin talking about, hey, y'all, y'all know being exists, people mm-hmm. are like, what? What yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yes, I agree that the ontological argument is probably not the best for evangelism, but as a worshipful experience, that's exactly what Anselm was doing. Yeah. He is saying, think about God as the highest being. Yeah. Now, if he is indeed the highest being and there is no being greater than him, then how much more should we praise him? Yeah. And so that's which, helpful for us. Which I do. And this quote out of Christianity Today, I think, sums up what you've just said. Christianity Today, talking about Anselm's ontological argument says that he simply believed knowledge cannot lead to faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And knowledge gained outside of faith is untrustworthy. So this is necessity of this faith and reason, mm-hmm. but faith precedes reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. so we're going to end today with a dead man talking, which comes from R.W. Southern. I know we've had a lot of Anselm quotes, but R.W. Southern was uh, a modern biography biographer of Anselm. And he has this uh, quote about Anselm that I think is helpful. He says, Anselm touched the thought, the piety, and the politics of the time at every point, and whatever he touched looked different afterwards. He founded no school, and in many ways, the immediate future turned against his methods and ideas. Ironically, his influence was conspicuous where it was least personal, in the sphere of politics. His own pupils, though stirred into activity by by his large and perceptive spirit, went their various ways. They left no easily recognizable impression on the future, yet they helped by collecting his works, by recording his conversations, and by adding their own more commonplace, though not negligible, appendices to the body of his writings to keep his influence alive. In other words, his immediate influence would be buried. Yeah. But it would return again, and the ghost of Anselm would indeed haunt the halls of our churches today in a good way. Good deal. Happy Halloween. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, anything else we want to add? I don't think so. That's what good. are you reading, John? The same thing I same was reading thing last reading time. Same thing 10 asked. minutes ago. That's no, exactly 26 right. minutes ago. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we do appreciate you guys joining us. We would encourage you, read Anselm. We got we got some uh, book recommendations. You can get the works of Anselm on Amazon, very cheap. It has the It's a compilation of all the works we've said today. Some of them are quite short, and you'd be surprised at how accessible they are. Uh, so I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, if you like our podcast, please do like, rate, and review us on iTunes. We will see you next week. Until then, keep loving your imperfect church, and remember one day she will be perfected in love.